Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensible Plants Podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? I'm doing great because we're talking about some of my favorite ecosystems on this planet, the grasslands. I'm a huge proponent for grasslands, and there's something I did not grow up understanding, but when you finally get into one, you'll get it, especially if you're a plant nut or an insect nut, or really just love biodiversity because they're some of the most important biodiverse ecosystems on our planet, and they need proponents, especially in the realm of protecting old-growth grasslands. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Catherine Suiting. She is a community ecologist with a wide variety of interests, but she is turning a lot of her scientific attention towards grasslands, understanding both their restoration and the dynamics of old growth systems in a variety of habitats. But I don't want to steal any of her thunder. She is a great proponent of grasslands and communicates their importance so eloquently. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Catherine Suiting. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Catherine Suiting, it is so great to have you on the podcast. I am super excited to talk to you today, but first, let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Great. Um, yeah, it's great to be here. My name is Catherine Suiting. I'm a professor at University of Colorado at Boulder. I study plants, some soils. Um, I'm interested in how things change over time. And I call myself a community ecologist. So I study how different um, species of plants kind of work, form the diversity that we see in systems like grasslands, which I think is what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. A lot of uh, really interesting projects you've worked on over the years and continue to, but what brought you to all of this? I mean, were you always kind of a nature nut, uh, just like being outside, or did you really take an interest in plants early on and, and grab on for all it was worth? I think plants was a little bit of a um, just kind of luck of the draw. I think I could have been an ecologist studying all sorts of things. i kind of envious of aquatic community ecologists for sure. <laughs> um, and I, I, really, I really like a lot of different types of science. Um, but I did my um, undergrad thesis work in plants. I was in um, Western Massachusetts and I started studying how ants disperse the seeds of some really interesting spring ephemerals and how that related to land use. And that got me going on a graduate you know, student program where <laughs> I was um, actually was looking at um, prairies in graduate school. So, um, so the kind of, that's just how things go, I guess. But um, I do like plants um, and they're, um, they've been fun to, um, to, to study in all sorts of different um, systems. Yeah, and you really do get your hands dirty in a lot of different systems. But the great thing about plants is no matter where you land in ecology, plants affect it some way, whether it's direct or indirect. So, you know, you you, you can branch out all you want. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Very cool. And so you mentioned grasslands and prairies, and indeed, that is why we connected today. And so you kind of mentioned it was a little serendipity, but what really kind of launched you into the world of grasslands? Um. Well, so I went to school at University of Michigan, but I grew up in Colorado. And I think one of the key things is I was looking for a study site to, um, to work on for my PhD. And 
So I really think that hardwood forests and the systems around Michigan, pretty amazing. I was drawn to the more grassy systems that maybe I grew up with close, you know, in the US West. And so I actually went on several searches to find um, some of these grassy systems that I could then use um, as the basis of my dissertation work. So I was using fens and sand barrens, and then I went down um, to o Ohio and a Lake Plain Prairie, which is where wow. I based my work. So I think people just have a natural affinity to some systems. And I think a lot of times it is what you grew up with and what you're kind of used to doing. Grasslands also were kind of nice because I could do some experiments with them um, and, you know, not as um, not as hard to manipulate, perhaps, as um, a, a, a well-established um, forest. <laughs> Certainly, I'd rather mess with grasses uh, on a smaller scale than try to maneuver trees, large canopy trees around, so good move. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, really enjoyed that. Yeah, and I, I've, I feel sort of like I was robbed of that early experience of a grassland because I grew up in the forest, not to say I don't love forests, but when you finally do get into an actual functioning grassland ecosystem, you realize just how special these places are. And it's fitting that you study change in systems because boy, in the history of this continent, few habitats have changed more than grassland, so to speak. Um, right. Yes. I think that that was another reason that drew me to them is I wanted to have my um, work, you know, in graduate school, you're kind of pushed towards theory and testing real basic hmm. science questions. But I also wanted my work to have some application and some relevance. And so I saw the, you know, invasion of many of the grassland systems and also how you manage them being a real nice way of merging community ecology and restoration ecology, and then also invasion biology. And so that's a, that was a really nice nexus to kind of start thinking about um, how we should think about these systems and how they assemble um, if we are um, trying to tackle some of these problems of change, right? Sure. And trying to manage, manage the systems for biodiversity or for, you know, some other type of um, function. We use them a lot. You know, <laughs> most of the grasslands are not just there just to look at, but we use them either for livestock grazing or for areas that um, are retain retain water or mm. for wildlife habitat. You know, so all those things. And so we really depend on them a lot. Right, right. I mean, the few that are left or intact truly are working landscapes in so many ways. But you know, as you hinted at even just in the breadth of where you've worked on grasslands, you think of the different climate zones and different stressors and everything that can mix and match and create a plant community. It, it stands to reason then that not all grasslands are the same, right? When you say grassland, that can mean a lot of different types or, or conditions that lead to a largely grass or herbaceous dominated ecosystem. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you take the basic definition that a grassland is just an area that has kind of continuous graminoid or herbaceous cover that covers a lot of different systems. So that would mean that do we have grasslands in the tropics for sure. Um, a lot of the grasslands could be considered savannas. So there's some trees, um, but they still have kind of a continuous understory. Um, throughout the um, Western 
Western United States up to even alpine um, and Arctic tundra. So, hmm. so really, really wide ranging in terms of the different climates um, that support um, these kinds of systems and the different plants that are able to live in these systems too. Right, sure. right. Yeah, I mean, just even within living in Illinois, you go from the northern part of the state, see what the tall grass prairie does there to maybe something closer to Kentucky down at the border. And even that in and of itself is vastly different. But the the key thing to me was realizing just how many species, plant, animal, you name it, uh, utilize these systems. I mean, these are truly biodiverse systems. And it's a shame because I think a lot of the, the common public, I guess you'd say, would just look at these and go, oh, that's a fallow field. There's probably not as much going on there as there would be in a forest, but that's definitely not the case. I think there is a, um, a perception problem for grasslands. <laughs> and I think it gets on to that thing that it's very hard to just walk into a, a grassland <laughs> if you don't know the different types of species and you don't know that kind of um, botany to say, okay, this is a real special grassland. This is just a weedy field, right? Um, but they really are different and they function very differently from, from each other. So, um, so that distinction is, I would argue, as important as a, you know, a really um, degraded um, forest up to a forest that has been there for centuries um, and centuries. And so it's just a little harder to tell because all the action in the grassland, a lot of the action in the grassland, <laughs> is below ground and you're not going to be digging up <laughs> what's happening below ground um, to, to really, really say. So I think there's been a common perception in grasslands that the, um, the grasslands kind of can be thrown together really quickly. And that if you do um, disturb them, they'll, they'll come back really quickly and they do come back as something really quickly. Mm. Right. You do get, you know, the, um, plants coming back in old fields, for instance, really quickly, um, but you don't get that structure of a grassland very quickly. And so when you're thinking about the how they, um, they are great habitats for this broad range of biodiversity, um, you're not going to get a lot of that breadth until, um, you know, till decades or um, we're finding now, you know, centuries of, of, of maturity and development, just like a forest, right. um, but just harder to see. Um, and that there's some types of impacts that we can make on a grassland where maybe the system will never be back, right? Wow. Maybe it'll, it'll, it's, it's, it's almost a, a irreversible change. We know that happens in forests as well, sure. but it's just something that we weren't, um, we weren't paying as much attention to and that we were really thinking of the grass lands as kind of the fringe or the disturbed habitats mm. a lot of times. Um, and so I think they, um, I think those differences across the, a weedy or a highly disturbed system and a very established ancient system are the same in grasslands as in forests or in, in pretty much any ecological system. Wow. And, you know, as a scientist who study this in, in different types of grassland ecosystems, is that lack of attention, not only from just the general public, but the lack of sort of scientific understanding, does that sort of hamper trying to understand the species that were once there, what the system's been doing, how it might behave moving into the future? I mean, is there something to be said for this lack of attention harming the science side of things? 
or at least hampering our understanding of what these systems could be? Um, absolutely. And I think it, it goes as far as there's a lot of questions that you think probably are pretty fundamental to um, understanding these grasslands that we still really don't know. For hmm. instance, if someone says, well, how old has this grassland? <laughs> you know, we, a lot of times we don't have the tools. We can't go in like, um, just as an example in a forest, right? You can do tree rings, mm. you can, you know, core the trees, right? You can figure out. Um, we just don't have those techniques available to us as as readily. There's there's some ways that we can get some clues of how old how old you know a grassland is, and so in some ways we can't give as definitive answers either. Um, so so that's an example. You know, another example is because a lot of the really interesting um, dynamics as a grassland gets older and and more mature happen below ground. You know, how often do you just go around and start digging things up just to see what's what's underneath, right? And so a lot of the below ground um, dynamics in a grassland, we don't know as easily as, as, uh, as well, because we just, we just haven't, we can't just observe them, right? Right. Um, and they're very hard to, um, to, to measure. And so you've mentioned the below ground aspects a couple of times now, and obviously, still a lot of T- TBD to be determined kind of situations. But when you talk about these aspects, what sorts of features are you hinting at, or at least big picture, what interests you in that realm of, of just below the soil and then some? So I think the, one of the first things I think about is um, kind of the different strategies that grassland species have, grassland plants have. And so we know very well that a lot of plants flower, produce seed, disperse, and that we can actually, if we want a little prairie in our backyard, we can, you know, get seeds and um, and kind of try to start that off, right? <laughs> so we, we know those plants and we know that strategy, um, but there's a whole nother strategy um, that we don't see as readily. And um, I would argue that's as important or probably more important in grasslands and that's um, spreading below ground through below ground buds, the mm. banks of those buds, the, the um, tubers. So, so all those kind of slower, it takes a lot of longer time, um, but that those things, there's a whole set of grassland species where they really don't rely on seeds at all. Mm. They will rely on um, these kind of below ground um, structures to uh, persist and also to expand. And so a lot of times we lose those species. If we plow up an area and then we expect, even if we allow the area to be, you know, recover as a grassland, those species will never be able to get back mm. or very, it's very hard to, to, to get back if they're not rely, relying on seeds. And so that kind of the, those, those, that whole group are, um, are, are really understudied and are, are really important for the structure. And even just how we, how those systems accumulate carbon, if you think about that in terms of that, right, those are the species that really, really do it, that have the real, you know, deep roots and the, and the, and the real important storage, um, storage organs. So that's an example. Whew, yeah, that's a lot to unpack. And I know just from 
having colleagues and friends that try to do it in pots, trying to understand the below ground structures of a plant, there's always going to be inherent challenges in that. But yeah, when you expand out, I love that you brought up strategies because it's, it's not all species acting the same way. They all have the same desire, which is to live long enough to get their genes into another vessel, I guess. But the way they do that is so varied and, and that dynamic between seed production versus not how many times in the limited experience I've had with prairie restoration work is, is seeing this. Well, yeah, I don't get it. When we introduce it, it does really well, but it doesn't ever seem to come back on its own or like we can't get seeds to work here. But if we plant the adults, they make it like all of that has to be considered. And to think about the hubris of trying to just do it, let alone trying to understand it scientifically, that gets very complicated very quickly. Well, and I'm also expecting like in a restoration that you should be able to do it and get everything back within you know, a couple of years is, you know, what the, what the policy usually mandates, right? Ooh, so yeah. it's like, you have to do it quickly, um, quickly too. So, and there's a lot of species, but we just don't even know how to get back, mm. right? We don't know if we, if it's not with seed, then um, the, our kind of technological understanding of um how to um, to reintroduce those species is just really limited um, because we haven't really realized that the importance of that strategy. So. Dang, yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's both fascinating and kind of daunting at the same time. I think like you know, we can kind of tread that line as both scientists and people that care, and and you know we should be trying to restore these systems to something, but. Yeah, that patience level of like, well, we'll get it back to what it was. <laughs> I think the cat's out of the bag in a lot of ways. Right. Yeah, and especially um, in systems that um, that have had a, a pretty severe below ground disturbance, right? Right. And so that things. So another way to think about the importance of um, these below ground structures is thinking about what has maintained grasslands throughout millennia, right? So they have evolved with people around, right? They've been working landscapes for a long, long time and they have been burnt, right? They're very mm. fire dependent often and they're also very grazing dependent. So livestock, but also a lot of large herbivores across across the globe. And so those those types of disturbances it's no problem to take off the tops of the plant, right? The above right. ground. Um, it's the below ground, right? And once and once they can establish the below ground, then the um, those above ground disturbances are actually those plants flourish under those situations. And so when we add some, something like plowing or uh, you know grazing so much that they can't um, they can't have their below ground um, structures persist, that's the time where then that strategy seems crazy right it's right. just it's not, it doesn't work but um you know for for centuries and centuries that that was a that was a great way to to persist in the, those kind of um grassland habitats yeah it kind of creates this conundrum because you know they are inherently some disturbance level uh is necessary but i've seen plenty examples of where we've abused that disturbance either through plowing or overgrazing but at the same time trying to communicate that to concerned citizens and say yeah but some level of grazing is okay and fire you know if you're doing it right isn't a very useful tool and you know maybe those trees even though they're beautiful and big they're they're probably doing more harm in the middle of a prairie than they are good maybe we don't plant trees there so there are these dynamic ecosystems that at the same time are are fascinating and inspiring but can also make communicating these complex ideas kind of difficult too 
Absolutely, yeah. And there's not one rule that fits 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 everything. For instance, the grasslands in the tropics have been really under siege um, recently because we are equating planting trees as a way to save the earth. And that's that's there's a lot of reasons why that's really good. But but planting trees in tropical grasslands, even though the tree can grow. <laughs> <laughs> can really do some damage, um, right. right? And so, and so, kind of having that, those understanding, kind of that how different systems are are maintained is really key um, yeah. to, to be able to conserve both the grasslands and you know and our other natural systems. Certainly, and I mean, I think a lot of what's come out of work such as yours and and your colleagues as well is just this idea of old growth grasslands. I mean, the fact that even though they're disturbance prone ecosystems, you can kind of hit that sort of mental reset button every time there's a fire or something like that, that's that, that, that underground process means they're maintained for years and years, centuries. And I think this idea of old growth grasslands, I'm happy to see it popping up more and more in popular articles because I think it's a, an idea that's a little bit more digestible, but maybe making that kind of communication jumping off point a little easier as well. I think one thing it, um, to equate that there are old growth grasslands, just like old growth forests, really, I hope, emphasizes the importance of when you, um, when there is an ancient grassland, that we really should conserve it and protect it because, um, because we can't, we won't be able to get it back probably. Right. And so that kind of idea about these very, very unique and special places need to have as strong of um, conservation measures as as any 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 forest system is is something that has been lacking, and I think it's something that um, really is important. Um, there's many areas of the world where there aren't many of these old growth grasslands left, um, and so and then the other thing is how do we get them close? And just to also parallel with old growth forests, you know, there's been a lot of work done that we can get close to maybe old growth forests. Maybe we can't replicate them exactly, mm. but over time we can think about guiding and using forest restoration as a tool to get them to have the same kind of structure and complexity as, as using the old growth um, forests as like a model. And I think we can do that as, in grasslands too. I mean, that's, Exciting and promising from someone in your position that's intimately familiar with this, because if it was hopeless, you could, you'd show it on your face, I think, even if you were trying to sell it a different way. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about that those, those, those characteristics that we, um, we, we value um, might be um, characteristics that are represented in these kind of ancient grasslands. So, you know, the structural complexity, the real strong below ground allocation, those species, those strong feedbacks with soil processes and um, soil organisms. And so, so having that as a way of guiding what we do when, I think that's really helpful to have those guidelines. For sure. And when you think about sort of the two sides of the coin we have to really embrace moving forward if we have any future on this planet. It's it's conservation of these old growth systems to not allow them to go to the wayside or get destroyed outright. But then that other half is restoration. 
And you mentioned sort of some short-term, some medium, some long-term processes. And when you think about it like that, what big picture, obviously, dynamics of these grasslands can you expect to happen in the short term? And what are some of the dynamics that really we're not going to see in a single human lifetime that uh, really we just have to understand better in the ones that still exist? Right. Um, Well, I think the key to grassland restoration is that there's feedbacks. As you mentioned, right, disturbance is really important. Disturbances are important um, because they interact with the vegetation and the rest of the community. Um, And so, uh, for instance, a grassland that is um, will carry a fire very differently if it has, um, you know, a lot of above ground growth and is is really, really thick versus one that is grazed or, you know, has has less below ground or above ground growth. And so those things, so there's this interaction and then more, more disturbance will also um, kind of drive the community towards a different composition, right? Species that can, um, can handle those kind of disturbances. So I think the key early on is to think about, first of all, what disturbances can we do in today's world that can simulate some of that, that those, those processes so that some of the species that rely on disturbances can persist and then can um, start kind of making feedback to have kind of these, these, um, these kind of self-sustaining disturbance regimes. And then also how to get some of these species that maybe wouldn't come in on their own mm. uh, in, right? And so that would be a part of restoration that we'd need to actively assist in to say, okay, we can jumpstart this because these are the species that if we don't put them in, um, we will, we will, they will never be, be here. Um, and so, so those two things I think are kind of key things that we can do if we think about restoration as like, when do we intervene, right? Hmm. The system is going to recover, right? Nature is going to put itself together in some shape or form, right? What can we do to have that, um, that shape and form kind of resemble closer to what we think, um, the, a, a, a well-functioning, sustainable um, system um, should be like. Yeah, and and that's exciting in and of itself to think of it that way because it 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 totally acknowledges that this whole pristine wilderness sort of thing is a kind of an old idea at this point. No one really should be operating with that, but this functional idea, the sustainable idea is a much more palatable, much more meaningful, I think, goal to hit is it's, uh, yeah, we'll never get back what we lost. But at the same time, we can approach something that can sustain itself with our involvement. Because like you said, humans have been involved in grasslands for millennia. I mean, it's not like the human hand suddenly came in with the Europeans. Like, no, it's been there. It's been part of us and, and really as a species in a big way, a part of us. Right. Yes. And so, it's interesting to think about what levers we have, right? And what levers we can use um, to help these systems assemble um, and what levers we don't have anymore. Um, and so that's a lot of times and what things we can do that maybe are not exactly how things were, but still have some of the desired effects. And that just takes some more creative thought. For instance, there's sometimes that you can use um, livestock grazing in a way that, that does simulate more closely what grazing for, you know, the um, native large herbivores, you know, how they would behave 
particularly if you don't have fire, it's hard to put fire. You know, some, some places have to rely on mowing, which is certainly not natural, but it still can do some of the, um, right. some of the, you know, have some of those processes. And so um, we're still, there's, but there's successes, um, but we're still, we're, we're still um, trying to, trying to figure um, out how to maintain these, um, these disturbance reliance systems without being, you know, with some of the disturbances just really not being compatible with um, us living nearby. Um, and so, and so that's, uh, I think that's, that's a key thing to keep, keep, keep pursuing. Certainly. And I mean, it's also kind of exciting from a scientific perspective because, you know, ecology is a fairly recent science. Restoration ecology is a very recent science. And it's really great to hear this because it's all of these examples of how Along the way, we can learn as we go. We could try things. We can understand how do species move around the landscape? Well, how do they respond to different types of disturbance? How do you even germinate or get species into a landscape where they've been completely erased? I mean, there's so many different chunks, different forms of science and inquiry can chip off throughout this process and collaboratively come together for a deeper understanding of these vastly imperiled systems. Yep. And I would also just add to that that it's not just restoration um, that we're certainly that's that's restoration is can be absolutely used in a real positive manner right Mm -hmm. what kind of solutions can we provide but then with climate change on top of restoration a lot of management writ large whether it's restoration (laughs) or conservation like we're moving almost every system that we know into this kind of unknown territory in terms of you know what's what solutions how do we how do we um make the most um, positive um, gains we can from the, the impacts that we might not be able to um, control, or at least on the ground, um, locally control. And so um, it's a, I think it's a, it's a way that you can think of science and think of ecology, but also think about the creativity and innovation mm. and you know, trying different things is where we should be, right? Because if we don't try new things, we know that we're um, going into this kind of unprecedented world. Um, And so just staying with the old probably isn't going to get us there, right? And so what kind of positive impacts can we have? It's a, it's a, it's, it's a nice way to, to take ecology, you know, nice direction. Definitely. I'm really, really happy you brought that point up. It reminds me of what uh, a previous guest, Jennifer Seska, once said about intelligent tinkering, because <laughs> there's That's just right. so yeah. many uncontrollable, unknown dynamics being thrown into the mix. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wonderful. And so in your time working in these systems, is there any grassland species that have really stood out to you that you just kind of look back and go, yeah, that was kind of a pivotal one or just one you think about when you close your eyes and think about these systems? Um, well, let me give you an example that you know, I think. <laughs> so um, one, um, just an iconic plant throughout the whole Midwest and prairies is Andropogon giardii. Yes. So big blue stem, right? Okay. Right. So this is a plant where, um, and it is, it is considered kind of a keystone, you know, a dominant species in tall grass prairie. 
it, you know, it grows, well, it makes, it's why tall grass prairie is called tall grass. <laughs> um, and it's, it's, it's just a beautiful plant. So in the Midwest in um, Illinois or where I worked in um, Ohio, you know, these, these, these plants would be huge and they actually have issues in restoration with um, prairies um, in, in that area that you actually have to not add very much seed of um, of big blue stem because it basically will take over. It won't <laughs> leave any space for any any other other plants. So they're kind of trying to they try to kind of almost reduce what uh, what um, how much they seed. And then you but you once you transition, so you go get to what drier and drier. And then let me give you an example of Colorado. So I I came here about ten years ago. And I go to this prairie that's around around Boulder. They call it Zarek tall grass. Mm. And there is this plant that is about um, maybe a foot, maybe two feet high max. And it is the exact same species. Yeah. So it's big blue stem. <laughs> it looks, you know, you, you it's 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 the same. Okay, so it's about a quarter of the size. It still flowers, but it produces no viable seed. Whoa! Almost always, we can't collect seed so we're starting this huh. this this grassland out here and we're thinking well we collect seed we work on restoration and we can't even collect seed at the most you know a most abundant plant out here and it persists by just spreading and spreading really Dang. slowly and then it made i'm sure every once in a while has a good year sure um, so so that has really taught I think blue stem has taught me uh, a lot over my career about just what it means to persist in different environments and to be be a grassland. You know, and then there's a lot of t- space in between, like like sure. Kansas and stuff like that. So, just just an just one example. I love that. That is so cool, and it just goes to show you how adaptable and dynamic these species can be. And boy, you think you understand something, and then you go a few hundred miles to the west, and it's completely different. It's completely different. Absolutely. I love it. And I love the work that you're doing. So with that in mind, if people want to find out more or keep a pulse on everything that's coming out of your lab and and the work you do with your colleagues, where do you recommend they go looking? Oh, that's a good, that's a good example. Well, we have a, we have a webpage. I have a lab webpage. Um, And then um, we, we do um, use Twitter to, um, to talk about some of the, the stuff that we're doing too. So um, you know, I'm involved in grasslands. I'm involved in alpine. I even have a love for apple trees. So we are, we are quite broad in terms of how we um, consider um, restoration and um, and community ecology. Excellent. I know. I was looking over your website and I was like, okay, she's going to be a repeat visitor at some point in the future for all of these projects. But Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about grasslands today. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you for championing these amazing ecosystems. They need every supporter they can get. It's it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. All righty. Hang in there and uh, go grasslands. (laughs) Cheers. Cheers. All right. Incredible stuff. I can't thank Dr. Suiting enough for both her time and all of the effort she puts into understanding these ecosystems and more. All of the relevant links can be found in the show notes for this episode, so go check them out. It's really interesting work, and she is a big proponent of both protecting and restoring grasslands, something we should all be concerned about. 
I don't know if you remember the episode I did a few months ago about Bell Bull Prairie and old growth prairie remnant in northern Illinois that is slated for destruction. I will put up links in the show notes to understand more about the dynamics there, but go check it out and pitch in your voice if you're in that area. Otherwise, I thank you all for listening. If you want to support the show, consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. Monthly contributions from my patrons make this show possible. I would not be doing it without their contributions. So if you're enjoying the show and you don't yet support it there, consider signing up. You can also pick up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch, and stickers. All of those are in the show notes as well. I do have a shout out to the latest producer on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Gabriel. Gabriel signed up at the producer credit level over at Patreon, so they're doing the most they can to support this show. Thank you, Gabriel. Otherwise, that is it for me. I thank you all for listening. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.